Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Brett, and we will now be reading today's passage from John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Please follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, we, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And now for Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest at the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words were words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At, this, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the, the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the reading of God's word. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. And um, I just want to say the, the Lakers have moved on to the second round. So there is a, a complete relief knowing that we will either play um, the Kings or the Warriors. So on to the Western Conference Finals we will be. Um, very excited for that. Um, I, I was, like, debating whether I should say that because, you know, like, Dylan Brooks, like, all this trash talk kind of backfired on him. And, and hopefully my, my trash talk does not backfire on me. Uh, so one of the things that we wanted to talk about, or I want to talk about, is well, what, are, what are some of the childhood memories that you have that really brings a feeling of nostalgia for you? You know, what, what, are, what, are, some, what are some things or events or, or toys or commercials that, that really kind of bring you back to your childhood, to a time where, where things were a lot more free, things were a lot more innocent? You know, I, I recently watched a video. Uh, someone po po posted a video online where it was really everything that was happening or all the good things of the 80s. You know, and some of you guys can relate with me, but like, you know, there was garbage pail kid cards, 
you know? If you guys don't know what Garbage Pail Kids cards are, it's like Pokemon cards um, with a little bit of, like, you know, edge to it, okay? And, and those were awesome. You know, they, I, I, I saw a video of a commercial called My Buddy and Kid Sister. If you guys grew up in the 80s, you know that. You go, my buddy, my buddy. And then kids, it, it's, it's so funny. And then there was Teddy Ruxpin. It was a little teddy bear, you, and it talks. Um, these are all things from the 80s, so you guys, you know, you know, like blowing into a Nintendo cartridge, you know, to start the game, you know, just uh, cuffing your jeans, you know, and, and like, it, I mean, these are, you know, the, the, the MTV Moon Man, you know, just like, it just, it just brings back feelings of, of like your childhood. It brings back feelings of, of, of like innocence of, of the good, you know, like if you grew up in like the 90s or 2000s, you might have different memories. But just, just watching those things and being reminded of it reminded me of a time when things were a lot like, you know, a lot more carefree. Uh, you know, with, with no real burdens or stresses in life. And, and I began to think about, well, what, what was a time when in my Christian life where I felt that way about worshiping God, where it seemed like worshiping God came a lot easier. And, and it, it was, you know, I was thinking about it, I was like, oh, it was probably like in college, a time when I can really just worship God without the feeling of, of stress or, or the burdens of life weighing down upon me. You know, because like in college, if you, if you went to college and if you had that time in college and it was a good experience for you, it was like the best time of your life, right? You can play basketball like on a Wednesday at like 9 p.m. and then not be sore and just wake up and then you're like, what do you got going on tomorrow? I got class at 11. You know, it's like no, no worries, right? And, and, and the more I thought about it, I realized that as we grow older and as the responsibilities of life come at us and as, as the burdens of life come at us, oftentimes the thing that is hindered most is our ability and our desire to really worship God in the way that he deserves and the way that he seeks from us. So uh, there's a, a book or a, a, a um, kind of a Bible study material called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, uh, it, it was intended to be used to teach children about the truth of God's word. Uh, nowadays, like, it, it's like an adult course, and we're like, oh, this is so hard. You know, but back then, it was, it was meant for kids. It was like a Sunday school program. Uh, it, it comes in question and answer form. And the first question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer to it is, is to uh, glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, that's the very first Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer. And, and to put it in plain words, the question is, is, what is the main purpose of human beings? What is our purpose in life? And the answer that they give is to enjoy God or to honor him, to worship him, and to be happy with him. Basically, to make God happy through your life, through your actions, through your words, through your deeds, and to be happy with the fact that you get to be in his presence. And when we think about what is at the core issue of that answer, question and answer, it's really this idea of are we as Christians, um, for those that are believers, are we really spending our lives worshiping God, honoring him, and also enjoying him? Do we enjoy worshiping our Savior? And so one of the things that I think it would be very important for us as a church moving forward is that we're going to spend the next six weeks really talking about this idea of worship, uh, really spending some time uh, talking about what it means for us to reverently and, in, and, and with the right attitude worship a God who deserves our complete attention, our reverence, and our respect. 
And when we look at uh, John chapter 19, verse 24, we see Jesus' words that there are elements of worship that takes into account all three members of the Trinity. In this passage, it talks about, you know, worshiping God the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit. That worship occurs not just in a very specific location, but it happens in spirit and truth. So for the first three weeks, we're going to focus on the principles of worship as it pertains to the members of the Trinity. How can we work, what is the perspective of worship as we think about God the Father? What is our attitude in worship as we think about God the Son? And what is our, our, our attitude in worshiping God the Spirit? What, and what is the role of the Spirit in our worship? And the next three weeks, we're going to talk into, or we're going to look into very practical applications of those things that we'll talk about. And even in our Sunday services that we'll apply that and that we'll practice it for us to be able to understand that worship is the very thing that God desires from us. So today we're going to look at worship from the perspective of God the Father and see what is the object of our worship, what is our attitude in worship, and what should our response be to the grace of God. So before we talk about the ob object of our worship, I want to be able to define what, wor what worship is. Now, when I ask, what is worship, many of us will describe and say it is the act of singing, right? And, and that's why we call it the worship team. I, I, I remember in college, you know, people be like, man, I really love worshiping God, but man, sermons put me to sleep, right? And you're like, what, what, what? And, and, you know, other people be like, no, see, that's wrong. Worship is the entirety of the Sunday service. And you can, so from the very beginning of it, you know, when it starts from the call to worship all the way to the benediction, the entire service is worship. And others would be like, well, worship is more about something that I do in my private life, right? And, and now there's nothing wrong with those descriptions. But the reality is, is that when we answer in that way, and, if, and if, you, if you answer in that way, what we're describing is not worship. We're describing modes of worship, the ways in which we can worship. But when we say what is the definition of worship, worship is not just singing, though singing is a part of it. Worship is not just attending a service, though that can be a part of it as well. Uh, worship is not just, you know, serving God, for, even though that's part of it as well. Uh, but worship is the act of giving honor and praise and adoration to God. It, it's, the, it's the action of, of, of honoring Him, recognizing and acknowledging His greatness, His worthiness and authority in our lives. It's the act of expressing our love and gratitude and reverence through singing. It is, our, it is the, the act of listening to his truth and his words as the word of God is made real to us through scripture, right? And so we honor God by living a way that is pleasing to him, by obeying his commands, by serving him with our whole heart. We praise God by, by declaring his goodness and faithfulness and and. and and we, we adore God by recognizing his beauty, his majesty, and his holiness. The fact that he is completely set apart from all of creation. And we do this by expressing an awe and wonder for who he is and what he has done for us. The modes of worship, of singing, of being in service, it, it, it's, it can be done privately, it can be done corporately. But the very definition of worship is our desire to honor him with our hearts, to, 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 to express our adoration, to express a, a, 
a gratitude for all that he has done for us. Now, the reality is that sometimes it's hard to worship God. Okay? Um, it, it's difficult because sometimes we don't want to. And not because of anything that he has done. Maybe so, but sometimes just because of the things that we experience in our lives. Right? Sometimes the difficulties and stresses and the burdens that, 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 that are involved in living in this world make it sometimes very difficult to come with a heart of worship. Right? I mean, just maybe something's going on at work. Maybe you're having relational problems. Maybe the very uh, goal that you had placed in your life to, to go to a certain program or to get accepted into a certain job or, or to see some advances in, in your own career or, or just hoping that you know, good things happen within your family life. Some of those things, sometimes it feels like someone pulls the rug out right from under you. And then yet we feel that we, have, we are expected to come to a place like this and show gratitude and, and honor and, and respect and, and worship and sing and raise our hands. And, and sometimes it's difficult. And the reason why that might be is oftentimes we have misplaced the very object of our worship and replaced it with something else. Now, when you woke up this morning, um, what was the driving force behind your decision to come to church? Some of you, it might have been, hey, you know what? It fits my schedule because church ends, pick up lunch, get home, beginning of the Warriors-Kings game. Starts at 1230, so it's boom, perfect, right? No meetings after church this week, right? Other you, other, others, we might have done it out of habit. We are used to coming to church. You grew up in church. You came to church every Sunday, and this is something that you do. Others may have come out of duty and obligation. Maybe some of you guys are serving. Maybe some of you guys are teachers. Maybe some of you guys have responsibilities here at church that you have to do. Maybe you have to sing. Maybe you have to do the call to worship. Perhaps you have to be in the back, and, and, you, and you're like, you know what? If I don't come, then it sucks because I'm letting people down. Others may have come because of your children. Like, it's good for my kids to come to church. Um, and I always find that weird because some parents come for their children and not for themselves. They're like, well, why do you think it's good for them but not for you? But we do that, right? Perhaps you came for social reasons. Maybe you want to see your friends. Maybe you want to get to meet people. And there's all these different reasons why you might have come to church today. And I'm not saying that they are not valid reasons. I believe some, a lot of, every, even the things I mentioned are good reasons. But if our main priority and if our main reason for coming to worship is not to bring honor to God in reverence and in awe, then we have to really ask ourselves, what are we worshiping? Because if your main desire to come today was out of obligation and duty, then really you are worshiping yourself. This idea that you are a person that is dependable, a person that is responsible. If you're coming mainly because you, are, you want your children to come to church, then your main object of worship is your kids because you want your kids to grow up a certain way. You want them to have certain values. If your main desire to come to worship is out of social reasons, and again, it's what, what is the idol that you are worshiping above God? So if we do not place God as the central and most important object in our worship, then we have to ask ourselves this question, what are we really worshiping? 
And guys, I'm, and I'm not speaking just to you guys. I'm speaking to myself as well. Because I'll be honest. If I'm not a pastor, I might be walking in now. You know what I mean? If I'm not a pastor, like, would I, would I be even saying these things? I might be home watching the Knicks play the Heat. I might be just taking my kids to, to hang out. And, I mean, the weather's not as nice as like a couple of days ago, but it's, it's still better than March. Because the reality is, is that we are people who are inclined to worship anything and everything except God. And what we must do is remind ourselves that the very object of our worship must be God. That we must correctly place God above all things in worship. I found that I haven't done so. I find that I, as a pastor, I find myself focusing more on the timing of worship. Especially when someone else is preaching. I'm like, bro, like, it's 40 minutes. You know? Or if they're speaking too, I'm like, whoa, whoa, it's only 20 minutes. You're already asking the worship team to come up? Like, what are we going to do? Right? The kids are still in their lesson. I find myself focusing more on the attendance. You know, like, hey, like, is there a moment when no one's going to come and this church is going to fold? Right? find myself focusing more on, on how things run or about the organization, the church as a nonprofit, and, and, and all the different, you know, things that we have to worry about. And through all that, I lose focus and I lose the main priority that we are people gathering to worship our Savior, worship a God who is completely set apart and completely unique and completely different than us, Not only because he deserves it, but also that in our worship, we are also witnesses to those around us, even in this room, who may not be believers. The best witness that we can have as Christians is a heart of sincere worship to God. Like, why, why would your non-Christian friend want to come to church if you come 20 minutes late, if you don't make it a priority in your life, then what makes it seem like they wouldn't want to make it a priority in their life? If we aren't worshiping God ourselves, then what right do we have to tell others that they need to repent and worship God too? The object of our worship, when we understand who God is, in his complete holiness, in his complete authority, in his, in his complete sovereignty and power, that affects, if we recognize who he is, that affects our attitude in worship. And that leads us to our second point. Uh, what is our attitude in worship? Okay. Now, bear with me here. I'm going to give you guys three examples from Scripture, two from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament in the passage that we read. And then I'm going to speak very frankly about our attitudes in worship. Okay. Um, so first of all, the first example is Moses. And this is a positive example of, of, of a person who comes with the right attitude in worship. Right? In Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters the burning bush, a, bu a bush that is burning but is not consumed. 
right? And as Moses starts to approach uh, this strange sight, a voice calls out and warns him to take off his sandals for the ground in which he is standing is holy ground. Basically, the, vo the, in the voice, the, the angel of the Lord uh, speaks to Moses and says, hey, take off your sandals for the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. Um, and then God announces himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And to Moses, and we, we spoke about Moses not too long ago, but for Moses, uh, we, we understand that he is in a place of, of complete shame, right? He is a murderer. He has run away from his, his hometown. He is now a shepherd. And now he encounters this strange phenomena, and he understands that he is in the very presence of Yahweh, very presence of God. And what does he do? It says, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. He understood at that very moment, he was in the very presence of a holy God. And that any, in his mind, he's thinking, I'm doomed. I am doomed. And it's interesting because of this very image that God reveals himself to Moses as a fire that is not consuming something. Because we know that fire consumes all things, right? Except it doesn't consume water, does it? You know, pretty much, it'll, it'll, it'll consume. Does it consume water? Scientists tell me later, okay? Consumes all, you know, it consumes most things. It'll burn it up. And this fire, and this fire was not burning up this bush. Because in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is oftentimes described and shown as fire. Uh, it, later on in Exodus, we see that God moves along with the people of Israel as a pillar of fire by night to provide warmth. But also the imagery of God as fire is to describe the fact that he is completely holy and set apart. That he, as a fire, will consume the things that are sin and, and impure. That as fire, that the main desire for God is that he would burn away the impurities in our life to make us holy just as he is holy. That God as fire oftentimes in the Old Testament would come down and consume sin offerings because sin cannot exist in his presence. And yet here's a sinful man in the very presence of God. God speaks to him and his correct attitude and response is one of fear and awe as he hides his face. Now we're going to see a negative attitude in the very presence of God in worship. The next story is a story perhaps not many of you are familiar with, but the story is about Moses' nephews or Aaron's sons. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, we read about the sons of Aaron who are priests. Uh, their names are Nadab and Abihu. And as sons of Aaron, uh, they are also priests, which are basically mediators between God and the people of Israel. Now, in Leviticus chapter 9, we read about a sacrifice made by Aaron for the people of Israel under the direction of Moses. So, in Leviticus chapter 9, um, we're not, I'll just summarize it for you guys, cliff notes. Basically, through the direction of Moses, Aaron the priest offers up a sin offering, a grain offering, uh, to God. He follows all the directions. He, he place, you know, places the, the ram and, and all that and the ox onto the altar, and then he sprinkles the blood upon the people of God. 
Now, if you guys don't understand what the purpose of a sin offering was or how it worked, uh, I'll, I'll describe it in, the, in a very simple and clear way. Basically, when a priest, who is the mediator, offered up a sin offering upon the altar, he would lay his hand upon this animal and say, may all the sins of our people be placed upon this animal. And then they would kill the animal because sin required death. And in, this, in, this, and in Leviticus chapter 9, as this offering was uh, given upon the altar, then it says the fire came and consumed the offering. Why? Because now the, the image is that all the sins of Israel at this moment was upon this dead animal. And for God, who is absolutely holy, cannot stand sin in his presence. So what he does is he sends fire, consumes that offering to, to basically purify sin away from the people of God. So we see an image of fire once again, describing holiness and also his inability to be surrounded or be in the presence of sin. Now, right after in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, right? I, I like that name, by the way, Nadab and Abihu, um, two sons, they had witnessed everything that had happened in Leviticus chapter 9. And what they do is that they take upon themselves, kind of overstep their responsibility, overstep their authority, and they decide that they are going to create this fire. That they are going to, it within their power, bring upon their own fire as a form of worship to God. So they get their censers. I was like, I was like, oh, the Bible has a, a spelling mistake. They spelled censers, C-E-N-S-E-R, right? And then I looked it up, and a censer is basically like a pot where you put incense in, and you burn, you burn the incense. So when it says that they brought upon their censers, they brought upon this little incense pot that they carried around. They put their incense in there, and then they called upon strange fire to burn that incense. What they were doing was completely against the will and authority of God. They took it upon themselves because in their attitude, they felt, unlike Moses, who would hide his face at the very thought that he was in the presence of God, they believed that they were on the same level as God and that they could create their own strange fire as a form of worship. And what does God do? Again, God and his fire cannot be around unholy things. He sends his own fire, consumes Nadab and Abihu, and they are wiped out on the spot. Now, I think a lot of times when we think about our attitudes in worship, um, it, it's, it's interesting uh, because we probably resonate more with Nadab and Abihu than we do with Moses. Okay. Sounds super negative, I know, okay? And I'm grateful for every single one of you that are here today, but just, just hold that thought for a second, okay? Now, our, our last example comes from the passage that we read in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is now a description of our New Testament worship. Uh, it, it says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest, right? So it, it, so basically, the author of Hebrews, he's, he's referring back to a story in Exodus where God comes upon Mount Zion, 
uh, to speak to Moses and to give his commands. And then basically this mountain was, the tip was burnt because God has come, his light, his fire has come. And, and basically the command he gives to the people of Israel is make sure that no one touches this mountain or even touches the base of this mountain. For if they do, they will be killed. And he says, even if live, livestock or cattle touches the base of this mountain, they must be stoned. And, and what this is communicating is this. God is saying, I am so holy, completely set apart. I cannot stand even, this, even sin to be in my presence that if any human being comes into my presence without doing the right protocol or following the right steps or with a correct mediator, they will be put to death. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, is, it, he's referring to that. And now, basically, he's saying, but through Jesus, you are now being transported to, to a heavenly realm, a place that is filled with festal angels, right? And, and then he ends this passage with this, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. For our God is a consuming fire. The New Testament form of worship is saying this, because now there is a perfect mediator in Christ, every time you come corporately together in worship, you are being transported to the heavenly realm where God sits, into his very presence, and therefore let us offer up a worship that is pleasing and acceptable to him. And again, our attitudes do not reflect the reality that we see in this scripture. Um, and again, I, I'm, I'm putting myself into this as well. What kind of attitude did you come when you came today? Perhaps you came um, not really thinking about it much, right? You just came because you came, right? That's probably the majority of us, you know? And, and, and here's the thing, like, if... If Sunday worship, if our corporate worship is, is a preview of eternal life, right? If it's a preview of eternal life, and yet you can't stand like an hour and 15 minutes without looking at your phone, right? If you can't even come on time, if you have to come 15 minutes late, and you can't stand to be, you know, I mean, our attention for an hour and 15 minutes, what makes us think that it's believable when we say we can't wait for our eternal life with God in heaven. We can't even, we can't even do one hour a week. And it's because, you know, honestly, like, we, we are so conditioned to just go with the motion and go with the flow without really being very thoughtful about what exactly we are stepping into. When Jesus told the woman at the well that there will be a time where we don't worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but that we'll worship in spirit and in truth, what he is saying is that once he is crucified, resurrected, and, and, and back in heaven with God, that we as believers will be able to gather and worship anywhere at any time. And that when we do, 
that we are not coming to a physical building or a place, but we are being transported to the spiritual realm into the very presence of God of the universe. And yet, we don't even treat Sunday worship as a doctor's appointment. Most of us come to doctor's appointments on time, right? We don't even treat it like, like, a, uh, like a personal trainer. Like We're paying for that. We're going to get there on time, right? Uh, and for sure, we're not going to miss a flight. Absolutely not. I, I get to the airport like two hours earlier. And I'm one of those people. But yet, every week, um, we wake up, and we're not very thoughtful about how we enter into the presence of God. Not only that, but we, the, our attitudes that we often have is that we are consumers, uh, not people who might be consumed. Right? We, we come as consumers, not as people who potentially have the ability to be consumed by God. We come here hoping for an entertaining service, you know. We, we come here hoping to, to consume maybe something that will help us in our life. We come here hoping to consume some sort of program or, or some sort of, uh, you know, good music or, or, you know, like some sort of Bible study or some sort of knowledge, and we want to consume and consume and consume, but we fail to come with the correct attitude that, hey, without Jesus, we are objects that could be consumed by God. And even with Jesus, when God's holy fire desires to consume us now, what he's doing is that he wants to purify us. He wants to remove the things that hinder us from worshiping him. He wants to remove the things that hinder us from living a life that's honoring to him. And yet we sit here and we think, when is this going to end? Or what is he talking about? Or why are we doing it this way? Or why is church like this? And we become critical. We become more hardened in our heart. And we have completely lost sight of the fact that we are worshipers worshiping a God who deserves our worship. That was like a tongue twister. And I believe this is why we want to bring us back to the very heart of worship. Now I'm going to end uh, with our last point, which is this, uh, our response to the grace of God. And the question is, is why are our attitudes such and such? Right? Why is it sometimes that our attitudes are not in a good place? Uh, I want to end with the sermon with this story from another story from Scripture. Uh, this story comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. We don't have the time to open it up. If you guys want, please read it on your own. Um, but in this passage, what we have is one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus accepts this invitation and goes to his home, reclines at the table, and is sharing a meal. And during a meal, a woman of the city, basically a woman of the night or a prostitute, uh, hears that Jesus is present in her town. So she brings forth an alabaster jar of perfume or, 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 or ointment, and then she stands behind him weeping. And the amount of tears that she sheds is enough to wet his feet. And, she, and then she begins wiping his feet with her hair and starts kissing his feet and then applying the perfume upon his feet. And the Pharisee is shocked when he sees this, and he's actually appalled and offended that he would allow such a woman who is ceremonially unclean, who is a sinner, who is a prostitute, to even touch him. And Jesus, sensing this, begins to tell a parable. Right? And he tells a parable to Peter, and then he says to 
everyone that can hear. Her sins which are forgiven, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now I want you to, if you might be familiar with this passage, but I want you to just picture with me and imagine with me just the, the weirdness and awkwardness of this story. Okay, now I'm not Jesus for sure. But imagine one of you guys invited me over for dinner and me and my family. So, you know, my wife Christina's there, my kids are there. And then all of a sudden, um, this prostitute enters into your home. And then maybe she heard a sermon that, on the podcast. And then she's like, Jay's here. And then she starts crying, right? I'd be weirded out too. But not only that, but it, like the amount of tears that she cried is like making my feet wet, you know? Like, have you ever, you know, like, even wet socks is disgusting, right? But, like, someone else's, like, fluids are, like, like soaking my feet, you know? And let's say that I was wearing sandals all day, so my feet are all, like, dusty, you know? And so now it's becoming all muddy and crusty, right? And then not only that, she starts, like, wiping, like, like she's not even doing it. She's not helping, right? Like, how's hair going to help wipe anything from my feet? That's gross, right? And I'm, like, imagine, like, the coarseness of the hair, you know? And, like, you know, if like hair is like kind of touching any part, like, because I'm not used to hair touching my body anymore. But if hair is like kind of on my, I'm like, what is, oh, what is that? You know, like, and she's like wiping it all off, you know. And then not only that, she starts kissing my feet. My, my wife would be like, who is this woman, first of all, right? And if you invited me, you'd be like, who is this woman and what is she doing? And then she brings out like, you know, the most expensive bottle of perfume or or. or cologne like cool water cologne right and, and starts pouring it on my oh, hey I, if you laughed i know how old you are okay and starts rubbing it on my feet that's that's a weird picture right absolutely weird picture a picture of someone who is completely uninhibited in what she desires to do a picture in someone who is so moved that she is in the presence of her Savior, that she cares little to nothing about what others may think of her. A woman who is in a place where she understands the amount of grace that she has received because she knows that she is a sinner. On the flip side is the Pharisee. And if I was, if I was in this position, I was watching this, I'd be like, Dude, Jesus is whack. He is weird. I'm, 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 I'm rolling with the Pharisees, right? Because he is a person of status. He is a person of religion. He is a person who is conducting himself in a, in a, in a proper way. And yet here's this Pharisee who invites Jesus to his home and yet has an attitude of entitlement. Who invites Jesus to dinner but yet decides purposefully that he is not going to offer any form of hospitality that is normal in that culture. He did not offer him any water for his feet. He did not offer him, I mean, there's, this woman is, is anointing him with oil, but he did not offer any oil to Jesus. And that might sound weird, but back in those days, you know, hot and dusty, oftentimes when you enter into someone's home, not only do you offer water to wash their hands and their feet, but you also offer oil to kind of, like lotion, to, you know, to kind of rub on, you, on the dry spots of, of your skin as, as a form of, 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 you know, like comfort. And yet this Pharisee did none of those things. Not because he didn't have it. He's a wealthy man enough to the, they could recline at the table together and eat. But he had, a, he had an attitude of entitlement. Like, Jesus, you should be happy that I invited you over. Because there's a lot of people in my camp that don't like you. 
And perhaps I can be that mediator for you. Perhaps I can be the one that can invite you and we'll talk. And hey, like maybe I can help you out a little bit. That's the type of attitude that this man had. The woman, on the other hand, responds to the grace of God appropriately because she understood the amount of grace that she received. Our attitude in worship oftentimes is directly tied, directly tied to the amount of grace that we feel that we have received. If you feel that you need little grace and forgiveness from God, that will be reflective upon the attitude of worship that you have. If you feel that you have received an immense amount of grace and forgiveness from God, that will reflect based, I mean, your attitude will be reflective of that. There will be a heart of worship that is completely unhinged and uninhibited by our surroundings. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, our worship needs to look, you know, crazy and that, you know, people should be crying every Sunday and, and you know, like jumping up and down. Um, I, I think it begins with the little things. It really does. Like, when we worship, when we sing, are you actually singing? And don't tell me you're not singing because you're not a good singer. Because I've seen some of you guys go to karaoke bars right and then you, and you sing in the car you'll you'll sing in the shower we all have the ability to do so we're worried about what other people might think about it though right don't tell me that you are unable to come to church on time okay cuz and parents i know oh i got kids we they're always on time for school right they're always on time for school. My kids have never been, okay, they've been late once. Don't tell me that you can't come to, to church on time because you go to work on time. You know, you're willing to wait an hour and a half to eat at ramen nagi. You know what I mean? We're willing to do, we're willing to do all these things. It reflects the fact that perhaps we need a constant reminder of the amount of grace that has been given to us. And for those that are still struggling with their faith or maybe have a lot of questions about faith, and, and, and you know, like, I speak to you in, in this way. Uh, I, you guys are here because you want to know. You want to learn. And, 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 uh, and I apologize if, if the attitude of those that are believers have been less ideal than what you imagined. Because that's unfortunate. It really is. So as we continue on, not only in this sermon series, but just even in our daily lives, uh, I, I, I hope that this sermon series will really bring us back to the very chief end of all human beings. The very purpose of our life to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, I, I, I know that um, what you desire from us 
is for us to really honor you and to enjoy you, to love you. And God, if we can't do that together here, um, I know it's much more difficult to do it outside of this building. So God, we ask, Lord, that through your spirit, that you would ignite within our hearts a passion to truly worship you, to truly repent of our attitudes, to reflect upon our attitudes, and to ask important questions about how we can be a people that lift you up in praise and worship. So Father, I know that there are a lot of things that we are going through in life, a lot of things that, that hinder us, and, and, and a lot of things that may cause us to not want to worship you. And in those moments, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to be reminded of the very forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. That we are not forgiven of little, but that we are forgiven of much. And may our praise and response to you reflect that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.